how you think about the fundamental problem of the human condition will determine what you think the solution is. Uh, what you think the fundamental problem is for the human condition will determine what you think the solution is. If you think that the problem is primarily intellectual or psychological or physiological or ethical, then you will likely look to, uh, well, uh, physiological solutions or therapy or morality for all of your solutions. However, each of those conceptions of the human condition very often assumes that, the, that we are essentially sound, that we are essentially in good order and we're just in need of a little cosmetic surgery or some good advice and then we'll be right as rain. We're kind of like that old house, that old home that uh, is really in good condition it's just in need of uh, a, a coat of paint, perhaps some new windows, some touch-ups here and there, and then all will be well. <laughs> but that is not at all how the Bible speaks about the human condition. From the biblical perspective, we are more like that old home that upon first glance appears to be in good order, but after closer inspection, you discover that the foundation is bad, it's falling apart and moving, there's mold throughout the house. The electrical wiring is, in dan is, is dangerous. You don't know how the house hasn't caught on fire yet. That's what we discovered when we moved into our home. Electrical wiring in the attic wrapped around nails like a baseball. I don't know how the house didn't burn down. And then let's add on top of that that you discover the house is infested with termites. See, we don't need a fresh coat of paint. Uh, some TLC here and there. Rather, we need fundamental change at the deepest level. Uh, this morning, we're officially beginning our new series in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And this is part of his point as he writes to them. He wants them to understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ radically changes and restructures our lives. A little bit of background on the, the town, the city of Corinth, and the formation of the Corinthian church. Uh, Paul visited the city of Corinth around A.D. 49. It was a strategically located city, located on the, the land bridge between northern and southern Greece. It was uh, reduced, really, to rubble in uh, 146 BC by the Romans, only to be rebuilt a century later by Julius Caesar as a Roman colony. But as is the case very often with strategically located cities located along um, well-traveled uh, routes, it became a thriving metropolis and a very wealthy city. Uh, and really a melting pot of different cultures. It was a city of contrasts. One person who traveled through the city of Corinth not too long after the Apostle Paul wrote this letter said uh, he spoke of the sordidness of the rich and the misery of the poor 
He called it a place abounding in luxuries, but inhabited by an ungracious people. Corinth was also famous, or should we say infamous, for its immorality. There was the temple of Aphrodite that sat up on a hill overlooking the city where thousands of prostitutes served as priestesses. And below that, there was the temple of Apollo where homosexuality was celebrated. And many of the Corinthian believers, many of those who belonged to the church in Corinth, had been a part of temple activities. And as we'll see, even as Christians in some ways remained enmeshed in temple culture. And actually over time to Corinthianize became a way of putting it a synonym really for all kinds of sexual immorality and perversity. It was, if you like, a giant red light district. And it was into this dark city that the Apostle Paul went to plant a church with the help of Priscilla and Aquila, which you can read about in Acts chapter 18. Now, Paul's initial time in Corinth lasted about a year and a half. And then he went on from Corinth to Ephesus, where he stayed for three years. And during his time in Ephesus, Paul received word that not all was well back in Corinth. Uh, the seduction of the surrounding culture continued to pull on these new believers and sharp divisions began to emerge among the fellowship. Sexual sin continued to be a struggle and forms of pagan philosophy and mystic cults crept their way into the teaching of some in Corinth, as we'll see. And so Paul's letter is designed to address those issues Head on. So it's not hard, if you think about that, it's not hard to see how 1 Corinthians has something relevant to say to our own context, doesn't it? After all, many of the struggles that the Corinthians faced parallel struggles that you and I face as we wrestle with the call of our Lord Jesus Christ to be holy even as the world and the flesh and the devil continue to try to pull us into sinful practices. And what we're going to see as Paul addresses the issues over and over and over again is he, he doesn't respond to the Corinthians with, a, with an angry rebuke or a series of self-help tips in order to live the victorious Christian life. Instead, in 1 Corinthians, Paul points these relatively new Christians back to the fundamental truths of the gospel of God's Son. Uh, as you read through 1 Corinthians, we're, we're going to see that no matter how complex the problem, again and again, Paul's solution is remarkably basic. It is knowing God in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. That's it. Grasping and learning to apply with ever-increasing depth the gospel of God's saving grace in Christ to all the details of our lives. That is Paul's response to every problem plaguing the Corinthian church. And so Paul's plan in this letter 
And I think God's plan for us as we sit under the teaching of this letter together, it's, it's not a mere facelift. It's not uh, a coat of paint to go back to the analogy of uh, home repairs. It is rather to build our lives upon the firm foundation of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so beginning a series in 1 Corinthians, is, it's, it's exhilarating. I'm finding that to be the case already. And I hope you're excited about it too, because it's going to deal with real issues that we struggle with even now. And what might the Lord intend to do in our lives and among our fellowship as we come together under the teaching of, of this book? And just as we begin, I, I want to ask you to pray with me that God would get a hold of our minds and our hearts and our lives with the truth of this book of Scripture and, and do his renovating work among us. So let's pray to that end before we read our text. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for 1 Corinthians and the opportunity to work through it together. And we commit ourselves to you as we do so and ask that you would renew our minds and transform our hearts and our lives that we would bring honor and glory to you. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would show us our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of his saving power and glory and wield the word to instruct our minds to convict us and deal with our hearts and to heal us and to train us to be the faithful servants of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. First uh, Corinthians 1 1. Let's hear God's word. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in his greetings... Paul weaves in themes and ideas that he's going to build on throughout the rest of this letter. And so in these opening verses, we really have some indication of what Paul is going to spend time working out through the rest of this book. And in particular, he, he raises four major themes that are certainly relevant to the Corinthians, but also deeply relevant for our own Christian lives. So let's think about these four themes this morning. The first is the theme of authority, the theme of authority. Take a look at verse 1 with me. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Now, on first reading, it might just seem like the apostle Paul is following the traditional way of writing a letter in the ancient Greco-Roman world, and, and he's doing that, right? Um, author, audience, word of greeting. But on closer look, it's very clear that there's more going on here. In chapters 3 and 4 in particular, Paul will have to defend himself and in his ministry from those who are challenging his authority as an apostle. So questions are being asked by folks like, 
Who gives Paul the authority to tell us what to believe and how to behave? Why should we listen to Paul more than anybody else? Those are questions that are being asked. And so Paul is reminding the Corinthians straight out of the gate of his authority as an apostle. Literally, verse 1 reads, Paul called an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Sosthenes the brother. Called an apostle by the will of God. In other words, he didn't make himself an apostle. The church didn't make Paul an apostle. His apostleship did not derive from men. He was called by the will of God, which invests him with an authority that other Christians do not have. That's seen in the contrast even here. Did you notice it between Paul, an apostle, and Sosthenes, the brother? And if this is the same Sosthenes that's mentioned in Acts chapter 18, verse 17, which I think it is, this is really a wonderful introduction to this letter because there's a whole story behind this phrase. Uh, Luke told us back in Acts that Sosthenes was a ruler of the synagogue in the city of Corinth. And in Acts chapter 18, there's no indication whatsoever that Sosthenes is a believer, a follower of Jesus. In fact, he has positive reasons for hating Paul and Paul's message. And that's because when the Jews in Corinth brought charges against Paul before Gallio, the the proconsul, and they brought these charges because Paul was winning converts among members of the local synagogue, even, uh, even leaders in the synagogue. But Gallio dismissed the charges. And so this mob of Folks, what did they do? They turned against Sosthenes and they enacted their rage upon him. He was, after all, the Arche Synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue, and they took their anger out upon him. And so he was made the butt of the rage of the mob because of Paul's ministry in Corinth. And that's certainly incentive for Sosthenes to dislike Paul and his message. But you see, here's the power of the gospel on display, Sosthenes has become a follower of Jesus, and Paul names him as his brother in Christ. It's marvelous. And just remember those of you who are witnesses to praying for loved ones and friends and family and neighbors. Some of you have been praying for years and perhaps have seen little signs of change. Remember today that God can take the least likely and make them brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. He did that with Sosthenes. But coming back to the theme of authority, notice as well, as wonderful as all that is, that Sosthenes is still just the brother. Whereas Paul is called apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. That means he is a unique spokesman of the Lord Jesus Christ, by divine appointment, by the will of God. And I I think this is so important for us to grasp today because in our own context, you know, authority is virtually a dirty word. And uh, we, we, I think, are taught to think of any form of authority as inherently oppressive. Um, Well, 
here's Paul straight out of the gate making it clear that what he's about to write in this letter does not come with the same kind of authority as uh, a friend offering you some advice over a cup of coffee. <laughs> Paul's words here don't carry the same weight of authority as someone giving you know, an informative talk that you might listen to by a, a so-called expert in a field. Now, Paul identifies himself as the mouthpiece of Jesus Christ by the will of God so that we should understand that every word that follows does not in the end originate with Paul, but Christ himself. Because Paul is simply a herald of the message that Christ is giving to his church. And so that's the first theme Paul highlights, the theme of authority. And I, I think it's worth just taking 30 seconds to reflect upon that for ourselves. And let's be honest. I mean, we live in the U.S. of A., where we have been taught to prize rugged individualism and self-governance. Um, where are you on the issue of authority? Where are we as a church when it comes to the issue of authority? Are you the ultimate authority in your life? Or is it the case that maybe you confess God is the ultimate authority in my life, but really when it comes down to it, when push comes to shove, you are the one who decides right from wrong? Or are you committed to read 1 Corinthians in this way, that what Paul says God says. And are you willing to read the letter that way as we work through it together? Are, are we a church, I hope by the grace of God we are, are we a church that listens to Scripture as the Word of Christ ruling us by His Word? I hope we can approach this letter that way together because this is the first theme right out of the gate, the theme of authority. Uh, the second theme is the theme of identity. The theme of identity. And here's another major issue in our day, isn't it? Who are we? Right? Who, who are we, members of Trinity Presbyterian Church? Take a look at verse 2 with me. Notice he doesn't just write to the church of Corinth, does he? He writes to the church of God in Corinth. That is its unique, distinct, distinguishing Character. You, you know the word translated church is the word ecclesia, which means assembly, of which there were many in Corinthian society. So what set apart this group? Well, this ecclesia, this assembly, has the distinction of being the ecclesia of God, the assembly of God, the church of God. It's not the church of Paul. It's not the church of the Corinthian church's leadership. It's not the church of the Corinthian membership. Trinity is not the creation of a denomination or a group or an individual, nor is it defined by its ministers or its members. In the end, Trinity isn't defined by or belong to any one of us. You see, we are, in light of what Paul is saying, we are the church of God, we are his, and we are for him. So the church is the assembly of God, his creation, and that means we are, 
We are created by God for God. And the church is not a self-defined, self-governing organization. Instead, it is an organism defined by its creator and ruled by his holy word. And notice Paul goes on here to reflect some more on the identity of the people of God as the church of Jesus Christ. What is the church of God? What distinguishes it from other assemblies? You know, what makes Trinity different from the local rod and gun club or some other social club here in the area? Look at the text. The church of God, Paul says, is made up of those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. We'll come to the word together in a minute. So that word sanctified and the word saint share the same Greek root. A saint is a sanctified one, which simply means to have been set apart, to have been consecrated for a particular purpose, like the vessels and the furniture and the priests themselves in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple. They were set aside. They were consecrated. They were devoted to a sacred purpose, dedicated entirely to God. And you see, that is, Paul is saying that is what has happened to us when we became Christians. We were sanctified. God has placed his reserved sign upon us, and we are set aside for his use, for his purposes alone. So like priests in the temple in Jerusalem, we have been consecrated and dedicated to him. And Paul is saying that is our fundamental identity now as the people of God, as the church of Jesus Christ, sanctified in Christ Jesus, set apart in Christ for God. And along those lines, Paul is going to tell us where this happens and how this happens. Notice, first of all, where it happens. He tells us again in verse 2, in Christ Jesus. God unites us to the Lord Jesus Christ through spirit-worked faith, connects us to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Holy One. And in Him, we are consecrated and set apart and declared to be holy too. And then he tells us how this happens. Glance at the text again. He says we are called to be saints. A better translation is simply called saints. The sovereign, effective call of God in the preaching of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit makes us saints in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, in the preaching of the gospel, applied by the power of the Holy Spirit, makes us to be holy ones as he calls us into union with his holy son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that is, that is really shocking when you stop and reflect upon that for a moment. Because who is Paul writing to? Paul's writing to the Corinthians of all people, of all churches, of all assemblies. And they were fighting, dividing, holding grudges, acting superior, suing one another in the public courts, 
sleeping around, participating in pagan rituals, getting drunk at the Lord's table, if you can believe it, and all manner of sin besides. They were a complete mess. But Paul begins his letter by reminding them of who they truly are. He calls them saints. He's telling them their true identity. They are sanctified in Christ Jesus because of the call of God. And it's time for the Corinthians to start being who they really are in Christ. By the effective call of God the Father through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's a word to us, isn't it? I mean, when you look at yourself, honestly, what do you see? You see a wicked, wretched, weak, fa- a failing, frail sinner. Don't you? I mean, full of all kinds of sin, covetousness, idolatry, a life that brings dishonor to the Lord, disrespect for lawful authorities, failure to love our neighbor, all kinds of inordinate desires, stealing from the Lord, stealing from others, telling lies, speaking words that destroy people, and on and on and on we could go. That's you. Yeah, that's me too. But you see, Paul's saying that is not our identity, brothers and sisters in Christ. That may be how we act in our backsliding in sin, but In union with Jesus, this is not who we are any longer. We are sanctified, holy ones, in union with Christ by the powerful call of God. You are a saint, is what Paul is saying. Believer in Jesus Christ. That means God has stamped his reserve sign upon your life to say, you belong to me. You have been set apart. You are dedicated and reserved for my purposes and glory. This is now the defining reality of your life as you are found in my son, Jesus Christ. If you hear one thing from me today, please take this with you. What Paul is saying comes down to this. He is saying to these messed up Corinthian believers, understand that This is not a status you work for. This is a status you live from. You are a saint. You are sanctified. You are set apart by the activity of God. Now will you not learn to think of yourself in that way? Will you not learn to live in light of that reality of who you now are? In the Lord Jesus Christ. It's time to be who you are. Paul is saying. To live out your identity before the world. And before the gaze of God. Stop living the old life. Stop thinking after those old patterns. Because Paul will say elsewhere in essence. That you is dead. That you has been put to death. On the cross of Jesus Christ. You died with Christ. So stop telling yourself otherwise and stop living otherwise. You are sanctified, so be holy. That's the logic of the gospel. It's the logic of the Apostle Paul. You already are a saint in Jesus Christ by the effective call of God. So it's time to start living that way. 
And so the themes of authority and identity. And then Paul mentions two more themes that are really the consequence of the first two. Uh, the next has to do with our new activity as Christians. So authority, identity, activity. Uh, here's our predominant activity. Look at verse 2 again. We are called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is not simply, he's not saying that Christians simply pray occasionally. He is rather saying this is the default mode. This is the predominant mark. This is the defining characteristic of those who are in Christ Jesus. They are those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians are always calling, always relying upon, always casting themselves on, always entrusting themselves to, always resting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Charles Hodge, in his commentary, puts it this way. He says, this phrase expresses not so much an individual act of invocation, right, a prayer, as a habitual state of mind. That's what it is. It's our habitual state of mind to call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're constantly calling. It's how we live, calling on, leaning on, resting on the name of Jesus and of course, that raises the question, though, is that true for us? Is this a defining mark of my life? Is this a defining mark of our life together as the people of God? Is it a notable feature of our life together and individually that we habitually and instinctively call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? When tragedy comes, when fear strikes your heart, or just through your day-to-day -day life? Is it your habit to instinctively call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because in your heart of hearts you've come to understand that all of your hope for the present and all of your hope for the future is found in Him. That all of our hope for service and ministry and growth and faithfulness Everything, all of it, is stored up and found in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we live dependent lives. That's theme number three. So we've got uh, authority, identity, activity, and our fourth theme is unity. It is another great fruit of the call of God that unites us to Christ Jesus. We are first Jesus' people who call on the name of Jesus, and then we are a united people. We are called saints, uh, verse 2, together with all those who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Do you, do you hear it? Do you see the emphasis on unity, the togetherness of the people of God? Paul wants us to understand that to be sanctified in Christ and to be called a saint has vertical implications. We call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. And horizontal implications as well. We call upon the name of the Lord Jesus together. We are one. And those two things belong together. Therefore, the prideful party spirit of the Corinthian church is incompatible with the habit 
of calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see what he's doing? He's saying these two things, calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, does not fit with this schism in the church of Jesus Christ. And so here's the principle. The principle is a Christian united to Jesus Christ loves other Christians. Say that again. A Christian united to Jesus Christ loves other Christians. Whoever they may be, wherever they are found, wherever they may come from. So just put these things together. Let's pull this together and see what Paul's doing in these first three verses. I hope you'll see what's going on. Biblical authority articulates gospel identity. That we are called to be saints by the effective call of God in Jesus Christ. And we're therefore set apart for God. And that new gospel identity leads to dependent activity. We call upon Christ, we cling to him, and to a profound spiritual unity. We do it together. We live out our Christian lives, not in isolation, but in the context of Christian fellowship and community. And so you see all those things hold together. Biblical authority, gospel identity, dependent activity, and spiritual unity. That's it. That's the whole argument of 1 Corinthians in a nutshell. That's what Paul is up to. And so as we start this letter together, I just want to challenge us. Can we, can we resolve together as God's people here, called to be saints together at Trinity Presbyterian Church, can we resolve by God's help to be who we really are? Set apart by the sovereign call of God in Jesus Christ, we are saints, dear brothers and sisters, sanctified ones because of the mighty call of God by his word and spirit. So that means you are no longer defined by your sin and your failure, though sin and failure may yet be present in your life. No, and rather you are defined in Christ as a sanctified one. And we are called then to work out that reality in our lives. So brothers and sisters, let's be who we really are in Christ. Holy and set apart for him. Which means that under the authority of the apostolic word, we must learn together to cling afresh and more deeply to our Lord Jesus Christ and do that together in the context of fellowship and communion. It also means, I think, by implication that we will be a people who preserve and cherish the church's unity Caring for those who are not like us because Christ laid down his life for her. Even this church, warts and all. You know, if I could go back to uh, our assurance of pardon this morning for a moment, we, could, we know John 3.16 very well. But what if we put it this way? How would it change how we treat and speak to one another? If John 3.16 said, God so loved Trinity Presbyterian Church that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. So let's look to God. Let's learn to be who we really are. Let's be holy because we have been 
sanctified in Christ in order that we may be sanctified in our lives. Let's call on him, let's cling to Jesus, and let's learn to love one another, preserving the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, thank you so much for your word, and thank you for 1 Corinthians and the chance to study it together. And we pray uh, that as we work through it with one another, that we truly would learn to be who we are, in Christ Jesus, as those who have been called saints, set apart for your holy purposes. We confess that although this is our identity in him, that we are so prone to fail to work out what that means for every area of our lives. So please help us. Help us to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus in every circumstance and in every situation in our lives. And help us as a congregation to work these things out more and more in the context of the fellowship of the saints. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.